You're listening to audio from Valley Christian Fellowship. If you'd like to check out more resources or even connect with us, go to www.vcflongview.org. Now, it's been a long haul. We've uh, spent a lot of time working through this, and I think we've gained a lot through this. But, but I know there's been some times where we've kind of wondered, are, are we ever going to finish the book of First Thessalonians? And, uh, and when, when, when people say that to me, it reminds me of, uh, of uh, long-distance running. Uh, any, who here has done their cardio this week, by the way? Anyone done cardio? A few of you? Good. I'm proud of you, right? Now, I, I had, I, I'm, I'm still kind of uh, building my stamina back up from sickness this summer, and, and, uh, and so I just started doing cardio a few weeks ago, but uh, I was thinking about some of the worst cardio I did was when I was in high school and middle school, and we had to run around a track. You guys remember running around a track? Now, here's the deal. Now you can do cardio, and you can do it in a million different ways. You can go run the neighborhood. You can uh, run in front of a, a screen on a treadmill, and you can be wherever you want to be. Some of you guys do the bike. You're on the Peloton, whatever it is for you. But you remember the track. The track where you just run in that big oval, right? And I remember starting out, and I was a decent runner in high school and middle school, and, and I remember running on that track, and I remember you start out really strong, and then sometimes, whether it was a good day or a bad day, sometimes that second lap, you started thinking, am I ever going to get to that fourth lap? Sometimes it was a little bit better day, and you're on the third lap, and you're like, how much longer am I going to be beating this track with my shoes? And sometimes you get to that fourth lap, and, and maybe, even, maybe even the last curve of that fourth lap, and, and everything in you wants to just give up. I mean, you know that the end's almost there. You know the end is sight. You, you see that there is a finish line, but your lungs are on fire. Your legs are almost jello. You're pumping your arms, and you feel like they're not moving. You feel like you're never going to make it. Is it just me, or you ever been there? How about, how about not on the track, but how about spiritually? You ever had moments in your life where maybe you feel far from God? You ever had moments in your life where you're struggling with, with your selfishness or, or with your sin nature? You ever had moments in life where you feel like you've messed up again, you're flat on your face, and you're thinking, God, when will I ever get there? When am I ever going to mature? When am I ever going to have victory over this sin? When am I ever going to get over this, this attitude or this sinful habit that, that clings onto me so tightly? I'm so glad you're here tonight. If you've ever had that thought, if you've ever had that feeling, I am so glad you're here tonight. Because if you notice in our text, our text tonight, as we, as we close the book of 1 Thessalonians, our text meets you exactly where you are. In fact, what you're going to see as your big idea in your notes, what you're going to see as your big idea of this text is very simple. God will see you to the finish line of faith. Let me say it again. God God will see you to the finish line of faith. In those moments when you feel like you can't make it, 
In those moments when you've fallen again, in those moments when you're sick and tired of your weakness and your sinfulness and the struggle, this passage has one of the most incredible promises in all of Scripture. God himself, he is going to see you to the finish line of faith. Let me show you what I mean. If you have not yet turned to 1 Thessalonians 5, I want to invite you to open up your Bible Or maybe open up a Bible on the table next to you or the chair under you. In fact, someone asked me about the Bibles out in the lobby. We have a bunch of them. If you don't have your own Bible, we would love for you to take one of the Bibles we have and just take it home as our gift to you. We would love for you to have it. But open up to the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to pick back up in, in verse 23. Let me read verse 23 for you again. Here's how our text tonight starts. It says, Now may the God, may, excuse me, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, tonight we're going to talk about the finished line of faith. And what we're going to simply do from this passage is we're going to pick up on the cues about the finished line of faith and how we should understand the finished line of faith and how we should even think and act according to the finished line of faith. And so here's the very first thing I want you to notice in this passage. I want you to see that this is a prayer. In fact, your first point tonight is to pray the finish line prayer. Pray the finish line prayer. You notice how verse 23 begins? It says, now may. Now, those words actually don't exist in the Greek right there. They actually connect to to the verb here, sanctify. In the verb here, the, the mood of the verb, it's kind of a Greek verbs, they have moods. In the mood here, it's called the optative mood. This is the mood of wishing something. And so when you walk by your kid's room, you say, man, I really wish my kid would clean their room. That's kind of what Paul is doing here, except he's saying, you know what? I really wish or I desire or I'm requesting and I'm asking. This is, this is the prayer mood. Paul simply is, in this moment, he is praying. And, and if we're honest, the theme of prayer is, it is throughout the entire book of 1 Thessalonians. Let me just remind you. Do you remember that 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the entire chapter is basically a prayer? Paul begins this letter with this prayer. Verse 2, he says, we thank, chapter 1, verse 2, we thank, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And then he continues with this prayer throughout chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. Paul says, we thank God for you. We thank God for the way you accepted the, the word. But then Paul doesn't just thank God in his prayer. You get to chapter 3, and and Paul's prayer shifts from thanking God, and now his prayer begins to make requests of God. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, Paul prayed, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Paul here wishes to visit the people in Thessalonica. He says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as you do, so that he may establish your hearts hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus 
with all the saints. Simply put, Paul is, Paul is a praying man. And as he writes, it's like he, he, he forgets at times that he's writing a letter and he just transitions in, into praying because Paul prays without ceasing. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And in this text, as he brings the letter to a close, I want you to see that he ends the letter the same way he begins the letter, in prayer, praying for this church. This is the, the kind of prayer that, that reminds us that we should be going to God and we should be bringing our desire before him. But notice, this isn't a prayer that says, may God uh, make your life happy without pain, without difficulty. We've seen lots of pain in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've seen loads of difficulty in the book of 1 Thessalonians. No, instead, this is a prayer that God's people will live like God's people. And so these first two words in our English Bible right here, uh, now may, here's what I want you to cue in. I want you to think of the rest of this message, the rest of this sermon as a prayer. In a very real sense, as we talk through the different elements, and there is, there is some rich theology that we're going to lay out before us as a church today. There, there are some wonderful truths that you hopefully will marvel at and rejoice at as we do it. Here's what I want you to do the entire time. I just want you to be praying silently in your own head and in your own heart. Lord, help. God, help. Help my life to match this. Help me to grow. Help me to understand. Now may. Now may. Let's start by praying the finish line prayer. Now, as we pray, we move on in verse 23 a little bit further, and, and we don't just pray the finish line prayer, but, but I want you to see that there is actually a plan. I want you to know. I want you to know the finish line plan. Paul here, he paints a picture of the ribbon that is at the end of the race that you are aimed at, that you are meant to run through. You're meant to be that guy, that, the, that one that runs through and has the ribbon break across you as you cross the finish line. This is the picture that he paints. He says, now may the God of peace himself, here's the plan, sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul, and body be kept blameless. You want to know what the finish line plan is? It's for you to be sanctified. Now, that's a big word. There's a lot of syllables there, and so I want us to say it together, okay? On the count of three, all of us together, we're going to say sanctified, all right? And, and everyone's going to be saying it, so if, you, you're, if it's a tongue twister for you, it's okay. No one will hear, right? On the count of three, one, two, three, sanctified. It's a big word. Let's break it down, though. Simply put, to be sanctified means to be made holy. To be sanctified is, is to make holy. You see, the finish line, the finish line for you, as you run this race, as you live the life of faith, the finish line for you is that you are holy. That you're holy. Now, holy is another one of those words that we hear all the time in church, and we kind of know what it means, but maybe we don't always uh, have our finger like pressing down on exactly what it means. And so I, I included in your notes, holy means to be set aside as pure for God's purposes. 
To be holy is when you take something and it's mixed in with a lot of everything else and you, you take it out of it and you clean it and you set it aside. It's like walking along the beach and seeing all of these different rocks covered in sand and dirt and whatever else you find on there and you take one of them and you wash it and you polish it and you go and you set it on your shelf and so that everyone can marvel at it. This is what holiness is. It's you being set aside as pure cleansed for the purposes of God. And this, is, this is the finish line. This is the finish line for you. And again, this is not surprising because if we just look back through the book of 1 Thessalonians, every chapter so far in one way or another has mentioned holiness. Chapter 1 Verses 9 and 10, as it talks about the Thessalonians, their conversion, their, their trust in God, here's what it says. It says, uh, for they themselves, these other people, they report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, listen to here, here and how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This doesn't say holiness, but you know what it does is it demonstrates holiness. It says that these people, when they came to faith in Jesus, they turned away from the idols. They turned away from the worldly things. They turned away from what we would consider that rock on the beach covered in slime and seaweed and dirt. It says they turned away from that, and now they're worshiping the one true and living God. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, you know how like a father with his children. Paul is describing the way he ministered to these people. He says, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you, watch it right here, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of God? To, to be set aside as pure for the purposes of God. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. This is part of Paul's prayer. He says, Now may the God, excuse me, now may our God and Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish, look right here, your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's praying for your holiness in chapter 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. He says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then chapter 4, verse 7, God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. And the book of First Thessalonians is a book that it, one of its major themes is not just prayer. One of its major themes is not just the return of Christ. We've seen that in every chapter, prayer, the return of Christ. We've seen Christian fellowship, true love for each other. But one of its major themes is that you, if you are in Christ, that you understand your finish line is holiness, sanctification, now, the Bible, it talks about sanctification, and it talks about sanctification in different ways. I would love for you to just tune in for a few moments. Make sure you understand this, because this is one of the marvelous truths of Scripture. 
There are three different kinds of sanctification that everyone who trusts in Jesus and his death and resurrection experiences. The first kind of sanctification is what we would call positional sanctification. This is your spiritual position, your current spiritual status as you stand before God. This, this is best illustrated in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. The first few verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians talks about how you and I, we were dead in our sin and our trespass. We were enemies of God. We were estranged from him. We were haters of God. We were children of wrath. But look at verses 4 through 6. It says, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Look at verse 6. And raised us up with him. Raised, past tense. And seated us with him. Seated, past tense. Where? In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You realize your spiritual standing, your spiritual position right now is in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. This means when God looks at you, you are surrounded by the identity which is the Son, Jesus Christ, who is perfect, who is holy, who is completely sanctified. This is one of the marvelous truths. Listen in church. When God looks at you, if you have trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your guilt and your dirt and your shame. It says that positionally speaking, you right now spiritually exist seated in Christ in the heavenly realms. When we talk about positional sanctification, this is what we're talking about, what God has done through the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. But there's other sanctifications. The second one is, is not positional, but it's, it's progressive sanctification. This is where you and I live. <laughs> progressive sanctification. This is your continued steps in holiness. That's what this passage is talking about here. Chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 23, when it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. It's recognizing that you are not quite there yet. It's recognizing that you and I, we're a bit of a fixer-upper still. We, we haven't reached that spot where we're everything we want to be. The, the term there, the tense, it actually indicates the, the view of a completed end. It's saying we have something in mind. What we have in mind is that moment where you cross the finish line and you are now set aside as pure perfectly, but you're not there yet. And so this is a prayer. It's a prayer of desire that you will grow to become who you should be. It reminds me of a song years ago. The line in it was, who I am is in between what I want to be and what I am. You ever feel that way? Who I am right now. It's, it's in between. It's in between this, this life that I live right now and the life that I know I should live. Because we all know that we're called to something higher. The last time I said, don't raise your hand, and then I asked a rhetorical question, people raised their hands. And so this time, don't raise your hand. 
Who here uh, let a a mean-spirited comment slip out to your spouse or kids this week? Who here found yourself uh, tempted in any kind of sexual venue at all? Who here finds your selfishness unbearable at times in the way you act in your own best interests instead of other people's best interests? Who here, when you look back over this last week, you see all the places you were lazy when God had called you to be productive? Who here knows that even though last week we talked about the importance of the Word of God, the Word of God sat on your shelf and collected dust for another week? You can raise your hand for this one. Who here is in between the life you're called to live and the life you used to live? See, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about progressive sanctification. Oftentimes I describe spiritual growth as a chart that looks not like this, but like this. Where you grow a little and you slip a little and you grow a little and you slip a little. And hopefully over the long term, the trend is upward because you are being sanctified. You're being transformed by the Spirit of God that dwells inside of you. We have two kinds of sanctification so far. Your positional sanctification is when God the Father looks at you, he sees you seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, perfect and pure, completely sanctified. But then we also have your progressive sanctification, which is the boots on the ground, everyday, ordinary struggle with sin. And then you have your permanent sanctification. Some people call this your perfected sanctification. This is your completed state in eternity. This is the moment when your life now is going to match your identity in heaven. And this, is, this is when you dwell in the glory of God forever with no sin whatsoever. I love the way John writes in, in his letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will we be, or what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. On that day when you stand in heaven and you are able to see Christ for all that he is, guess what? On that day, there is going to be no sin that tempts you. Because you're going to have the glory of your Savior standing before you. On that day, the greatest temptation is going to look like the most revolting, disgusting thing you could ever imagine. Because you're going to have the beauty and the majesty and the glory and the honor of Christ. And your eyes are going to be laid upon him. This is your permanent sanctification This is the finish line. This is what we're aiming at. This is is what we're aiming at. And so the text, it says things like, may may you be kept blameless. That term kept blameless, it means may you be guarded or may you be preserved. May you be watched over. You know how you're preserved or guarded or kept blameless? You're done it through, or, or you do it through understanding this idea of sanctification. The more you remember your identity in heaven, 
And the more you remember the, the ultimate reality of your, your place in heaven for eternity, the more you grow in that progressive sanctification, the more you're kept blameless. And then Paul uses this phrase to really just to emphasize how complete this is meant to be. He, he, he says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Now, sometimes we read this and we think, okay, what, what does this mean for me? I mean, if, if we step aside from the thrust of the text for just a moment, people actually argue over, does this mean that, that like I am, as a human being, there's three parts of me? Do I have a body and also a soul and also a spirit? And there's actually debates over this. And, and I don't think this is the most important thing in the world, but I think people ask this question, and so uh, it's worth thinking through. Predominantly, the scripture speaks of a human as being immaterial spirit and being material, the physical. Predominantly, the scripture teaches that there are two components to a human being. You are body and you are spirit. But the word spirit and the, use, the word soul are oftentimes used interchangeably. By and large, the scripture speaks of you and I as, as two pieces, body and spirit. Now, you think about this, and you think about God's other creations. What are angels but spirit without body? What is the animal kingdom? Body without spirit. Now, I know your dog looks at you with beautiful eyes, and they've got personality, but, but we're talking about the breath of God breathed into human beings. We're talking about the, the image of God stamped onto you, not just being a physical being, but actually having a soul, body and soul, or body and spirit. That's what this is teaching. It's like Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28. He says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Back to our text. When Paul says this, when he says, may you be kept blameless in your body, soul, and spirit, here's his point. He says, may you be sanctified through and through. May there not be one ounce of your being that does not have the work of the spirit running through you. Now, I just want to sit here a minute longer. Because I want you to see why this is so important. I imagine there are some in this room who, who right now you walk in here and you are carrying the weight of your sin from today. Some of you are, you're just burdened by your sinful thoughts, your sinful actions and your sinful desires. I know that every week there are people that they debate with themselves before they come to service. Should I even come? Because I've messed up again. I want to speak to you pastorally for just a moment. I want to remind you in this moment, as you, as you wrestle in your battle against sin, as you hate your sin, as you struggle with your sin, as it is something that you wish would just go away, I, I want to remind you of those laps around the track, back from high school or middle school. And I want, you to, remi I want to remind you of those moments where you felt like you could not take one more step and you were exhausted and maybe that's how you feel right now about your sin. 
And I want to remind you that you are in the middle of a process. And that process is not over. And as we're going to see, God is not done with you yet. He, he, he is not the kind of God that sits with his arms folded, staring down his nose, saying, when are you going to get it together? He's the kind of God that sent his perfect, sinless son to die to pay the price for all of your sin. To cleanse you completely through and through. I don't want to get too far ahead, but he's the kind of God who will faithfully see you to the finish line of faith. So I want you to know there's a plan. And I want you to see that you might be only in lap one of that plan of sanctification, and you might have three more ahead of you, and you might have a long, long haul before you. But but there is a plan And not only is there a plan, but but I want you to see that there is a finish line. I want you, the next point as we continue is to await the finish line period. You want to know when that plan is going to be complete? Here's what it says in verse 23. It says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are not going to finish your process of sanctification this side of heaven. Either you and I, we go and be with the Lord because our our bodies die, or or you and I, we we are rescued through Christ and his, his rapture and his return. But the point is, in this life, your battle or your journey on sanctification, it is never complete. We are going to deal with what's called the remaining corruption of the flesh until our very last day. The Bible, the scripture writers speak clearly about it. They use words like waging war against your flesh in Romans 7 or in 1 Peter 2. Now, I just want to remind you of this because sometimes people, they come to me and they're pursuing Christ, but they've, they've had a bad church experience. Now, again, don't raise your hand, but I imagine if I said, who here has had a bad church experience, all of us would raise our hands. You want to know why, by the way? Because church is full of us. And we're really good at stepping on each other's toes. But, but, but here's the deal. Sometimes people will come and they'll say, Mike, I've, I've just been told I've got be, to be perfect, and I'm not perfect. And they're carrying nothing but guilt and nothing but shame. And they feel like there's no safe place to admit their, their failures and their sin and their brokenness. And so they never admit and they never confess and they just hide and they just cover and they just bury. It's like sweeping the dirt under the rug, the same rug, day after day after day until there's just this big, obvious bulge under that rug. And you're like, there's a problem here. There's a problem here. You're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. John, that letter of John, it says, he who says they are without sin is a liar, which is a sin. (laughs) This side of heaven, we're always going to be battling. So I want you to to, to just take a second, take a breath, and, and the point is to await the finish line timeline. The, the period is going to be when Christ returns. But, but this now leads us to what I think is, is the most important part of this text. The entirety of this text is amazing. But the most important part of the text is, is to trust the finish line provider. To trust the finish line provider. 
Did you catch what it says in verse 23? It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Let me say it again. Now may you pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps so you can be a better person and so you can try harder and so you can do better. Is that what the text says? Look again with me. May the God of peace himself, that word himself doesn't have to be there, it's added for emphasis. Now may God himself sanctify you, make you holy, set you apart as pure for his purposes. And I love how it describes God here because, because God can be described in a myriad of ways. He can talk about how God, may God Almighty or may God the All-Holy or may God the Just or may God the Gracious, whatever term he wanted to use here, he could have used. There are many ways to describe God, but in this particular spot, as he's talking about you and your battle and you and your finish line, he says, may the God of Peace. Peace. This is the idea of having an inner sense of tranquility. It doesn't mean that everything externally is good, but it means that you have an inner sense of tranquility because of God. You have an inner sense of peace. Why? Here's why. Because you have peace with God. You have peace with God. You see, the Bible describes us as relational beings, and we have relationship with God, and that relationship with God is the most important relationship that any one of us will ever have. Your marriage is important, your kids are important, but your relationship with God, it far outweighs any of that. And here's what the Bible teaches. We've already touched on this a little bit. The Bible teaches that you and I, we are born in sin, that you and I, every one of us, we rebel against God. It's been described as cause cosmic treason because God is the king of kings and lord of lords and you and I every single one of us we have said God forget you I'm going to do it my way I'm going to build my own kingdom I'm not going to listen to you the word the Bible uses I'm going to sin and when we do that we become enemies of God and not just like the kind of enemies that like you, you shoot them a dirty look across the, the workbench or something like that. This is the kind of enemy where you are outright enemies and you are, you are bent against one another. This is where you were and where I was before trusting Christ. This might be where some of us in this room are right now if we've yet to even trust him. And, and there's only one way to have peace with God. And, and you know what that one way is. It's not, let's come to the table, and God's going to make some concessions, and I'm going to make some concessions, and we're going to redraw our boundaries, and we're going to have peace through some sort of agreement that both of us give something. No, no. The only way to have peace with God, it's already been accomplished. It's already been accomplished when Jesus came, and he took all of your sin. And all of the consequence for your sin and mine, everything we have done in rebelling against God, everything that, that we earned the punishment and the wrath of God for, and he says, I'm going to pay the price for it all in full. Your debt has been paid. Your dirt has been cleansed. 
your guilt has been removed, your condemnation is gone. And so because of that, you are no longer an enemy of God. You are reconciled with him. You have a peace with him. Jesus calls you his friend. God, the Father, calls you, get this, not his enemy, but his child. His child. See, see, when Paul writes, may the, peace, may the God of peace himself sanctify you, he's cueing us into this reality that you and I, we have an inner tranquility that no matter what happens in this world or in our life, even no matter what happens when, when we stumble and when we fall and when we rebel again and have to go back to the Lord and say, God, I messed up, we have peace. May the God of peace himself sanctify you. God is the source of peace, but, but keep going. Verse 24. Not only is he the source of peace, but look at verse 24. This is one of the verses that you can barely read without, without just sitting back and being like, whoa. Look at what this verse says about you being sanctified. Look at what this says about you and your finish line of faith. Here's what it says. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You know who's going to sanctify you? You know who's going to get you across that finish line of faith? You know who's the remedy for your sinfulness and your selfishness and your wickedness? You know who's going to deliver you from your greed and your anger and your prejudice and your hate and your lust? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This term faithful is simply trustworthy, dependable, reliable. You can count on him. There has, been never, there has never been one second in all of history that God has been unfaithful. There has not been even, even the splitting of a moment where God has been unfaithful. Because he can't be unfaithful. Because he is faithful. And faithfulness isn't what we compare God to. Faithfulness actually flows out of God. We know of faithfulness because we know God's character. And he says, I will... I will see you to the finish line of faith. I will get you there. I guarantee it. And it says that he who calls you is faithful. Calls here is, is a present tense participle, which means this is meant to be a timeless idea. It means that God calls you and he continues to call you and he never stops calling you and his call upon you, it never ends this is the same God who we've seen call you over and over again already in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 12. It says, We exhort each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Chapter 4, verse 7. God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. I, I, I think about Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This is one of those memorize it, live by it verses. Philippians 1, verse 6. Paul, same author, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 
Same idea, just phrased a little bit differently. It says, the one who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. Not you will bring it to completion. It's not God starts the ball rolling and says, okay, let's see how you do, buddy. He called you. He saved you. He's not going to give up on you. He's not going to let go of you. He's not going to turn his back on you. Why? Because of how good you are? No. Because of how faithful he is. This is marvelous, church. This is, uh, this is one of the most marvelous truths that we cling to in the middle of our rebellion, in the middle of our selfishness, in the middle of our hard-heartedness and our thick-headedness when we turn and we remember God and his faithfulness and how he has called us and how he is going to see us through. He is going to get us to the finish line of faith. He is going to complete his good work. Now, from verse 20, 24, then... After that, there's just a few final instructions. And these final instructions, they're kind of like the icing on the cake, but I think they connect to our theme that we've already talked about. And these last few final instructions, they, they basically, this is your part. We've already looked at a lot of our part in the last five chapters, but this is a summary of your part. Let me, let me just read verses 25 through 28. It says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. See, there's no such thing as a spiritual lazy boy. The scripture says he who calls you is faithful, but it doesn't tell you, okay, he calls you, he's faithful, and so I don't even need to think about spiritual things because he's just going to do it all, right? That, that's not what Paul lands on here. He gives these last few instructions, and, and for these last few instructions, I want to walk through them, but I want, to, I want to prime the pump by going back to Philippians again, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I think this is the greatest picture of how, how our part and God's part work hand in hand, how it's really God working in us and through us. Let me show you what I mean. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Time out. Paul's not with him. He's talking about their obedience when he was there. And now he's about to give him some really important instructions. Here's what he says. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, let's sit there for a minute. The first thing I want you to know is he does not say, work for your salvation. This is a salvation that's already been granted. This is a salvation that's already been completed. Why has it been completed? Because Jesus died and rose again. That's done. So when he says, work out your salvation, this is the idea of live into your salvation life. In fact, the, the, this, this word here, it's voice, uh, this is kind of Greek, geeking out on Greek a little bit, but the voice here, it can be translated in two ways, as a middle voice or as a passive voice. Middle voice means you do some action and, and someone else does some action to you, and the passive voice means you don't do anything Someone else just does it completely. When it says work out your salvation, this is, this is a partnership picture. You can't do it on your own. 
There's something behind the scenes moving and working in you. And then verse 13 describes exactly what it is behind the scenes. It says, for it is God, two things, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's spirit dwells in you. God the Father has called you. God the Son, Jesus Christ, has redeemed you through his death and resurrection, and now it is God who is working in you to will, to give you the desire to please God, and then to work, to give you the power. God doesn't just give you the desire. He gives you the power. Listen, God is the source of you living out your salvation. He's the source and so if, if you take that and you turn back to these last few verses of 1 Thessalonians, here are the final few instructions. The first one, pray for each other. Pray for each other. Now, verse 25 says, brothers, pray for us. But, but really, if we apply this, we end up praying for each other. If you want to apply it more specifically, you could say, pray for those in, in, in leadership or in ministry, but, but really... This is just a call to pray. We've seen it through and through already. I don't have to read you all the texts already in 1 Thessalonians. We've done that already. The second is to love each other. Verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. So I want you to turn to the, the person next to you, even if you don't know them. No, 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 no. Ancient days, this is a, this is a, I see that over there, Okay. In ancient days, this was a, a common greeting. It was a, a display of affection. It wasn't meant to be romantic. Today in our day, especially in America, this is, this is romantic when we kiss someone. But you go, you go to other parts of the world, not so much. I've told the story about when I was in Russia. I was in a, uh, an Orthodox church in Russia. It had this incredible prayer room. And I went in there and I was praying. And I, as I was leaving, one of the nuns, she, she greeted me. And she, uh, she wanted me to make sure I kissed the, the, the picture before I left that she had just slobbered on, right? And then, you know, what they want to do when you leave is they want to kiss you on both cheeks as well. Many countries are like this. This isn't talking about romantic love. This is talking about really loving each other, let's just say in culturally appropriate ways. So we pray for each other. We love each other. Verse 27, read the word. Again, this is just applying this, but here's what he says. Verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. I'm tempted to re-preach last week's message, but you know it was almost more than we could handle last week, so I won't. But, but last week, we emphasized the importance of God's word. And then finally, verse 28, live in grace. It says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You, you want to know how to sum up living on track in one simple phrase? Here it is. I'm going to sum up the entirety of these 19 weeks or these 19 sermons over 28 weeks. Here it is. Are you ready? Live in grace. Live in grace. Live in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that is with you. You know what that means? You are not perfect but God is perfecting you. You are not faithful. Listen, but God is. In fact, here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to stand. And for my conclusion tonight, I'm going to read for you for, 
from a different passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. This is potentially a, a hymn for the early church, maybe a song, but it's, it's just so beautiful. Listen to these words, close your eyes, and maybe just allow them to, to flood into your mind. I'm going to read these, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And our last song, or our, our song to end with is, is, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. It's a song that's all about how we are weak and we aren't able to do it on our own, but God is working in us and through us. So now with that, let me read this text, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he, will, he also will deny us. Look at verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our hope. It's not our ability to do better, to try harder. It's the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. It's the indwelling Holy Spirit who guides us in truth and even now convicts us of our sin. It's your faithfulness as our heavenly Father, as the God of peace. And this evening, Lord, I pray that your peace would have full effect. It would guard our hearts and minds. Father, I pray that your peace would comfort us as we come to you with our sin and we confess our rebellion and we don't find a, a stern, mean father. We, we find a kind, holy, and faithful father who has promised to finish the work he started. We thank you that our hope is in that you, that you will do it. And so we ask that you would continue to work in us and bring us into a life that is holier and holier. We pray that you would sanctify us through and through, spirit, soul, and body. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.